Picture this. You're fishing in a wild river, and suddenly there's a tug on your line. Chris Santella loves what it feels like when you're fly fishing. You wait for that grab of the fly, and, and it's like electricity going up your arm, and you don't forget that, and you really get to crave it. Coming up, he shares some of his favorite places around the world to go fly fishing. If you want to explore the countries bordering the Indian Ocean with David Mould, don't expect to be spending a lot of time on the beach. It's a little tiring traveling with me because I'm always asking questions, you know. We'll hear what he found exciting about everyday life in Madagascar, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. Or if you prefer urban comforts with a human touch, may we recommend Copenhagen as the most convivial capital in Scandinavia. We have that thing that is probably more a little relaxed, laid back. Find your groove in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Looking for a change of pace? We'll get insider insights into fun-loving Copenhagen with its many pedestrian and bike-friendly possibilities in a bit. And we'll explore everyday life in countries that surround the Indian Ocean with a researcher and consultant who got to understand the challenges people face in Madagascar, Bangladesh, India, and Indonesia. Let's open the hour by standing in our hip boots in some of the world's most beautiful waterways. The sport of fly fishing has become a favorite way for many urbanites to decompress. And that's how Chris Santella started his 50 Places Recreation Guides. He now also writes about places to paddle, bicycle, golf, and snowboard. But his number one passion is fly fishing. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks. What is it about fly fishing that those who know it and love it are so passionate about? I've thought about this a lot, oftentimes when I'm out on the river, and I think that people come at it from a a lot of different directions. First, I think there's the chance to be out in nature in a quiet and beautiful place. There's an old saying that trout don't live in ugly places, and neither do bonefish or tarpon or Atlantic salmon. So you're you're usually in pretty pristine places that can support these uh, fish species. I think there's something about, especially if you're river fishing, about being in the water. I don't mean to sound cliche, but there is something about the oneness of of being with the river and that sense of flow. I drive a lot over mountains and past beautiful rivers in Europe and in the United States, and I see a lot of people with hip boots on standing thigh deep in in the river, and there is something uh, special about that, I would imagine. Yeah, there is a feeling of being in the moment and in the flow of life. I mean, we often use rivers as a metaphor for a flow of life and time passing, and it's never the same water that you're standing in. And I think there is something profound, perhaps subliminal about that, that has an appeal. Mm -hmm. There is an analytic side of, of fly fishing. I think it has appeal to people, the whole idea of trying to determine what the fish are eating at a given time and then trying to either look in your fly box and find the the right fly that seems to match the kind of bugs that the trout might be eating. Or I know some friends will bring a fly tying vise and some feathers and, and hair and hooks to the side of the stream. And if they don't have what the right bug is at the time or the right fly, they will go and tie it up on the spot and hope that they're going to make that match. Matching the hatch is the, the term that uh, a writer named Ernie Schwiebert came up with years ago. 
hatch being the kind of insect that is uh, occurring okay. on the river at that time. But just having the arsenal and matching the fly with the others that are being eaten, that's probably integral to being a successful fly fisher. And very important, and you'll find some anglers that are, you know, better equipped than others. I've been out with some friends who will have literally 500 or 1,000 flies. I usually have one or two boxes and, and hope that... Uh, what I have will cover things 90% of the time, hmm. but there's always 10% that doesn't mm-hmm. work. And One fly could work great this morning, and another fly would work great in the same hole this afternoon. Exactly, because what happens on many river systems is you will have different sorts of insects emerging, coming out of the river or settling down upon the river at different times of the day. You might have mayflies that are popping up from the bottom of the river as nymphs and then turning into adult bugs and being on the surface in the morning. Mm. And that might Mm. be a white insect the size of your pinky nail. And then in the afternoon, as it gets warmer, the grasshoppers might become active and the wind may be blowing them into the river and they are green and yellow and they're the size of your thumb. It's sort of a a battle going on. What are they eating? It is. It's man versus versus nature. Chris Santella has written a dozen best-selling books about outdoor adventures in his 50 Places series. One of his titles collects the thoughts of passionate anglers on why I fly fish, and their favorite fishing places are covered in 50 More Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. You'll also see Chris's byline in major sport fishing publications. We have links to his books in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. You know, of any outdoor activity out there, I think fly fishing must have had more impact by a certain movie than any other. You just call it, uh, among (laughs) fly fishers, the movie. Of course, it's a river runs through it. And when I think of that, you get the image of casting and what a ballet it is in the middle of nature and the rhythm and the art of that. Is that just showing off? Is that just fun? Or how is that so important? I often find people when I'm doing talks or signing books that are very intimidated about getting involved in fly fishing because they think, I'm not going to be able to cast at 90 feet like Brad Pitt did Mm -hmm. or Jason Borger did. That was the casting double. Uh, And I say, well, you shouldn't be concerned because most of your trout fishing at least occurs within 20 feet or maybe 30 feet. What you're saying is it matters, but you don't need to be able to do that in order to enjoy fly fishing. Not at all. And and, and most situations don't require that sort of Uh uh, very long cast Being able to throw it a long way can be helpful in some situations, but in many situations, being able to cast it accurately 20 feet Ah. is going to probably help you catch more fish. (laughs) A lot of the the nuance of it is being able to control what the fly is doing once it's in the water. If the current catches the fly line or the leader, which is the piece of nylon that attaches the Mm -hmm. fly to the fly line, it makes it whip through the water, moving it at an unnatural speed, and the fish can see that. But you can control the line by doing something called mending, putting the line upstream, and that can control the speed that the fly goes and make make it look like it's floating more naturally. A little technique there. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Santella. His book is Why I Fly Fish. And Chris, the book is, uh, it shows your love of fly fishing and your passion for this and expertise in it, but It's essentially a collection of articles and stories from great anglers, passionate anglers, and it's fun to to get their philosophy about it. I mean, Lisa Cutter wrote a a little piece, and she's talking about getting away from the chatter in your mind and talks about 
the lakes of the High Sierra. Somebody else uh, had this quote that apparently is famous among fly fishers. God does not subtract from the allotted span of a man's life with the hours spent in fishing. And then you added, I think fly fishing is even better. Those are so fun to get a little insight into this whole culture and the camaraderie of fly fishing. Right. You know, people find solace in it for many different reasons. I had the chance to speak with Henry Winkler, for example, very, very kind man. And he was saying that he felt he had some physical awkwardness when he was younger and didn't fit in with sports. And he came to fly fishing a little bit later in life because it gave him a little more confidence in his physicality. You interviewed all of these people, and you have a companion book, 50 Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. Of all these places, what are a couple of your favorites that you'd like to share with people who might be travelers who go to Iceland and stand under a waterfall or, uh, you know, go to Crater Lake? Or what is some of the most remarkable and memorable fly fishing opportunities, uh, if you want to incorporate that into your travel planning? One place that I've, I've been recently that is remarkable for how remote it is and, and really unspoiled it is a place called the Panoi River that's on the Kola Peninsula of Russia. So that's the little, it's the northwesternmost part of Russia up above the Arctic Circle, about six, seven hundred miles northeast of Helsinki would be a, a way to think of it. Mm-hmm. And the quarry there is Atlantic salmon. In many places in the world where Atlantic salmon used to be prevalent, Their numbers have been greatly mitigated, if not destroyed, by industrialization and overdevelopment. But here's a place that partially because there are no roads, partially because there was a lot of Russian military activity on the Kola Peninsula, that part of the world never got any population, never got settled. So you get flown in by a big Mi-8 helicopter, Mm. which is not quite the luxurious helicopter that you might use heliskiing. (laughs) drop down in the middle of the tundra, and they've erected this beautiful little village there. That's the only way I can describe it. There are 40 permanent structures and a fleet of boats, and each day you go out on the river and you're using two-handed fly rods called spay rods to cast flies for Atlantic salmon. And the Atlantic salmon can be anywhere from 8 to 30 pounds, and when they take the fly, it feels like you've hooked into a freight train and they will clear three or four feet out of the water. It's quite an exciting experience. One thing about fly fishing, because I've salmon fished quite a bit, and you have so much tackle that gets between you and the fish when you have certain kind of fishing, but when you are fly fishing, there's no better way to be close to the fish in that that wonderful struggle. You feel every every shake of the head and and every lunge and and I think that again is that's one of the other very primal appeals of of the sport to feel that tug there's a saying that here among steelhead anglers a lot here in the Pacific Northwest the tug is the drug and when you're steelhead fishing you may not hook many fish in the course of a day or even a week but you wait for that grab of the fly and it's like electricity going up your arm and you don't forget that and you really get to crave it I would imagine it's mostly catch and release, but there are some places I learned by reading through your book that uh, there's more than enough fish and and they actually want you to catch and eat them. There certainly are some venues where a fish can, certain species are considered invasive species and and they do encourage you to harvest those fish to reduce those numbers so that the endemic fish can come back. I generally practice catch and release myself. It's, for me, it's about the sport. Sure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Santella. And Chris has written a book called Why I Fly Fish and 50 Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. Chris, you're from Portland and you love fly fishing. Let's just close off with 
if you were going to take me to your favorite place in Oregon State for fly fishing, where would we go and what would be so good about it? All right, here's what would happen. I would come by your hotel, Rick, either at about 3.30 a.m. or 3 p.m. It would be a September day, and we would drive east on Interstate 84 to the Deschutes River, and I would put a 12-foot, 6-inch spay rod in your hand, and we would hike up the river from near where it goes into the Columbia, and we would wade out into the river to see if we could catch a summer steelhead, and the sun would be high above the, the canyons of the Deschutes, but as we're fishing, it would start to sink lower and lower, and as there's less light on the water, the fish are more likely to take the fly, and hopefully we would end the day with a fish catapulting out in the middle of the river. Then we would drive back to Portland, but we'd stop in Hood River at Double Mountain and have a hop lava IPA and one of their heirloom tomato pizzas, and we would discuss the wonderful experience we just had. Sign me up. Chris Santella, thanks so much for sharing with us a little insight into why so many people love to fly fish. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. Chris Santella writes more than a dozen titles in the 50 Places series of guidebooks on where to golf, surf, sail, rock climb, and go bird watching, plus 50 fly fishing tales. He has a new book on 50 Places to Practice Yoga, scheduled to come out next year. Chris has also been known to sing original tunes around Portland with a roots rock band called Catch and Release. We'll explore the laid-back nature of Copenhagen in just a bit. But next, the Indian Ocean's are backdrop as we explore four countries linked by trade, migration, and a colonial legacy, where they're getting ready right now for the next monsoon season. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He's taken crowded ferries, rickshaws, and bush taxis to explore way off the tourism beat. As a professor, researcher, trainer, and consultant, David Mould specializes in Asia and Africa. He's written about the stands of Central Asia, and now he shares what he's observed about life in Madagascar, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia in his book, Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. David joins us from West Virginia Public Radio in Charleston in an interview we recorded just before the COVID-19 pandemic took hold. Happy to be with you, Rick. Wow, I've always looked at the Indian Ocean on a globe and thought... Far away, <laughs> far away. And you, you basically traveled the whole rim of that ocean to write this book. Why the Indian Ocean? Well, uh, it's an area that my work took me to. Over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I've worked for a number of international agencies, most recently UNICEF, and I've been fortunate enough to uh, do teaching, consulting, research, and other work in these countries. So it's kind of serendipitous, if you like. Uh, and as I've mm -hmm. uh, traveled around, I've made lots of notes and uh, yeah. written articles and essays, and then out of this come a book. Because the book doesn't really read like a guidebook. It, it reads like you've got a friend who's really connected and committed to these cultures and have uh, really been active in these cultures. So it gives us a, an intimate look at just the people and, and the heritage and, and so on. Give us just a quick overview of how your travels provided the structure for the book. Where did you go? Well, I, I've been to Madagascar, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia over a period of a, a little more than a decade. You know, I've been working at this time, so I haven't sort of gone there as a travel writer. And so that's why you're not going to find anything on hotel prices or right. recommended restaurants. But as I travel around, I take a lot of notes on what I see 
the people I meet. Uh, in fact, I'm, it's a little tiring traveling with me because I'm always asking questions, you know, uh, what's happening in that village over there? What's that crop they're growing there? Yeah. Is that an elephant we just passed on the road? So I'm trying to observe the, the everyday and the life of the people and connect with them as much as I can. So it, yes, it's about travel, but it's also about history and culture and politics and uh, just the challenges people, in, especially in the developing world, face in living every day. You know, I'm, I'm always asking about where people shop and what right. they're eating and how their daily lives are to kind of get that lens on a culture. And when you think about Madagascar, when you think about the Indian subcontinent, think about Indonesia, those are disparate places, so different, but they do have the Indian Ocean in common. When you look way back, you realize the Indian Ocean was kind of a conduit for a lot of trade, and a lot of the heritage of the region really is uh, ancient networks of trade. Talk about the Indian Ocean world from a, what are the roots of it and the, and the heritage of it? What, what can we say in general about that area? Well, it's an ocean that's been much more traveled than the Atlantic or the Pacific. I think in the United States, we tend to think of the two oceans on either side of us automatically because of trade and war and uh, you know, slave trade and other factors that have connected North America to those oceans. But uh, for thousands of years, the Indian Ocean has been much more traveled. The people have moved around, as you said, religion has spread agricultural practices have spread. So because it's a kind of arc in shape, there's been a lot of transit between um, Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent to the Arabian Peninsula and down the coast of East Africa. Hmm. So those trade routes are really, really important. But I think we also need to think of it in a, something of a global context. I mean, today we think about sea lanes and oil and geopolitics and all of that. But, you know, historically, that's always been the case. There's a great quote from a Portuguese envoy, a guy called uh, Tomé Pires, and it was after the Portuguese captured uh, the city of Malacca, which is today is in Malaysia, on the Straits of Malacca, that narrow strip between Malaysia and Sumatra. Mm -hmm. And that was the road or the sea lane to the Spice Islands and also to the China trade. And his quote after the Portuguese captured the city in 1511, was whoever is Lord of Malacca has his hand at the throat of Venice. And I mean, to me, that quote sort of demonstrates wow. how uh, the, the Indian Ocean was globally connected. Yeah. Of course, spices at that time were kind of the you know, the diamonds or the rare earths, shall we say, of the 15th and 16th century, the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and then the Dutch were all fighting for control of the spice trade. Well, Indonesia was so, called the Spice Islands when they were first yes, yes, named in, by Yes, the indeed. Dutch. Yeah. And, and when Vasco da Gama, 500 years ago, sailed around Africa to get to India, I think it was all about spices. And what he encountered, to his surprise, was already a highly developed trade network and very sophisticated navigators. 500 years ago, yes. And I mean, and that has continued. And today, if we look at the region and we look at the rise of India and China as well, I mean, China's primary goal now is the, something called the Belt and Road Initiative is to get a connection to a warm water port on the Indian Ocean. So the Indian Ocean historically has been very important to trade and to geopolitics and remains just as important today. So it'll be a strategic arena in the 21st century. 
David Mould is sharing what he discovered over a decade of working in countries that surround the Indian Ocean. His book is Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. He also posts travel blogs on his website, davidhmould.com. That's spelled M-O-U-L-D. David expands his overland journey into southern Africa and eastern Europe in his newest book, Postcards from the Borderlands. That's set for release in November. Let's look at this whole region now. Again, if you can think in, in your mind, Madagascar, that's the huge island off the east coast of Africa. India, uh, one of the most populous and in the future, uh, going to be an emerging uh, economic power countries on the planet. Bangladesh uh, and Indonesia. Indonesia is as wide in, in territory as the United States with as many people. Now, you make five points in the introduction of your book about what ties this region together. And I'd love to just talk about these points one after another. Uh, the cover of your book has a has a dramatic shot of people riding their bicycle through a muddy river. And um, <laughs> monsoon is part of the title, Monsoon Postcards. My memories of traveling in South Asia are monsoons. Um, what's the big deal about monsoons, and, and how does that how's that a, a common feature through the region? Well, we need to, you know, we think of monsoons as a weather event, you know, a lot of rain and flooding. But, you know, monsoons are very much part of the fabric of life in all of these countries. I mean, a monsoon, you know, not only brings rain, but it determines when you plant your crops or when you harvest them. It determines when you can travel or not travel. Hmm. It determines often when you get married uh, when you have children. I mean, so the whole cycle of life really revolves around the monsoon. And it, it's kind of ironic. I mean, the monsoon brings rains, it brings flooding, Bangladesh, you know, floods every year. But the, you know, the waters that come down and, uh, and flood the country also leave rich alluvial soil, which enables the population to plant three rice crops a year. So the so monsoon's both a curse and a blessing. Yeah. In fact, my memories of monsoon was it disrupted traffic in India and it caused people to be very joyful. There was sort of a, a release of joy when the rain came. And I, I, that must be tied to fertility and we'll have um, food for the coming harvest. Absolutely. It's, it's very, I mean, this is violent weather, but I mean, it's absolutely crucial to um, the economy and to the culture and to the society. Okay. Yes. Now, speaking of economy, British colonialism is a common denominator across this region, British, French, and Netherlands. Uh, so we've got European colonialism, and that planted a lot of seeds for today's infrastructure, but also today's uh, post-colonial challenges. Talk in general terms about the Indian Ocean region and how European colonialism built it and plagues it. All of these countries are artificial countries. I mean, they didn't exist as countries before the colonial powers came in and combined kingdoms and sultanates and uh, other territories and then sliced and diced them up. So the boundaries, the political boundaries that we look at today, I mean, especially in the Indian subcontinent, were those that were imposed by the colonial powers for their own economic gain. You know, it it is a mixed legacy, shall we say. I mean, certainly the economy was improved. On the other hand, it was an economy based on natural resources and agriculture with the colonial powers extracting most of the wealth from these countries. Before we leave that, I was just in in Ethiopia and learned that 
you know, the, the colonial heritage really is infrastructure, but the infrastructure is essentially to get the resources out of those countries. So yes, it's yes, one indeed, great yeah. road that goes to one great port, and let's just, <laughs> let's just uh, harvest this country and, and bring the resources raw to the rich world so we can process it and, and make money off of it. And another thing you mentioned was these are fake countries put together by European colonial powers for their interests, and today the heritage that I learned from my travels in the area is that if you have a centralized government, it has to be very artful at being top-down, but at the same time respecting tribal uh, needs. Uh, and if it's one tribe over the other tribes, uh, depending on who happens to be the prime minister, you're going to have trouble. But if you have an enlightened central government that gives uh, necessary autonomy and respect to the various tribes that, that make up in a, in a nonsensical way because of European colonialism this country today they'll have a better chance of having stability and development. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense to me, and uh, I think we're a little short of enlightened central governments. But if you look at Indonesia, I mean, um, 17,000, 18,000 islands, who knows how many, there's no precise count. But trying to create a sense of national unity mm. out of all of those islands, all of those different ethnic mm. groups, all of those different cultures, I mean, it, it's remained a challenge. I mean... When Indonesia uh, became independent, um, you know, for decades the government struggled to build that independence. And still in Indonesia, uh, there have been uh, religious, well, religious and political conflicts. The nation state here remains quite fragile. And, you know, one worries about what's happening in India right now. Well, when you think about na Hindu nationalism in India and the fact that 15% of the country is Muslim, it's kind of flip-flopped in Indonesia, isn't it? It's dominant by Muslims with a small right. Hindu minority. Mm -hmm. Is there similar tensions in Indonesia, just like sadly we see in India now? There have been tensions between you know, the Muslim majority or parts of the Muslim majority and Christians, although, you know, sometimes religion is simply used as a cloak for economic and political advantage. So what is Most classified times, as a religious conflict is actually about gaining land and natural resources and other economic advantages. Hmm. And, but Indonesia historically, I think, has been uh, a fairly tolerant form of Islam. I mean, there are extremist right. groups there, certainly, but, you know, I think most Indonesians are sort of pretty modern, pretty secular Muslims. So yeah, I, I think some of those conflicts have subsided. But, uh, you know, there will always be conflicts over natural resources yeah. and land and uh, logging concessions. And sometimes these are simply framed in terms of religious conflicts, which is kind of convenient uh, for politicians and for some religious leaders to right. do so. But as people observing, we need to see through that. I mean, I think you'd yes, say the absolutely. same thing would be true in, in Ireland. It's more, it's more economic oh, yes. <laughs> and religious between the Catholics and the Protestants. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Mould. His book is Monsoon Postcards, reporting on a decade of, of working and studying in the Indian Ocean region. And, and it's fascinating for me. We're learning about the Indian Ocean and the countries that surround it. We've hit three of your important points that draw the whole region together. Can you just give us a, a general take on the natural challenges facing this region and the political challenges? Yeah, I mean, the natural challenges, as you've said, you know, are those that come from climate change, but also, you know, in a, in a country like Madagascar, for example, 
Most of the tropical rainforest has gone. It's been cut down for trees, cut down for lumber and for charcoal. And so you have this sort of combination of um, kind of global climate change and then, you know, local or more country-specific change where, in this case, the forest is uh, pretty much gone. Then this gets tied, I think, really to political instability. And, and Madagascar is a really good example of political instability. My favorite restaurant in uh, Antananarivo, the capital, is called Coup d'état, K-U-D-E-T-A. And that's, you know, a reference to Coup the fact that that's a funny name for a restaurant. <laughs> well, it's a reference to the fact that this is one of the politically most unstable countries in the world, and yeah. they've had lots and lots of coups. I mean, the, the central government has very little power over the regions. It has very little in the way of resources. The, the prime minister a couple of years ago, his party had no representation in the parliament. It's like it, it's a wonderful country mm -hmm. and the, uh, the French haute cuisine is astonishingly cheap, but it's also a pretty dysfunctional country as well. And if you have a dysfunctional country like that, then it's really difficult for the government to um, you know, impose environmental controls, to stop deforestation, to stop wildcat sapphire mining in the tropical rainforest, mm -hmm. uh, to stop the export of natural resources. I mean, a, a previous government had proposed selling about half the agricultural land to Daewoo, the uh, uh, South Korean conglomerate, uh, South Korea certainly needs its food, but they'd forgotten to ask people who were going to lose their farmland and whose ancestral tombs were going to be bulldozed wow. uh, in order to make way for that. This is all just a fascinating sort of um, foundation for traveling in this region. And uh, we're out of time now, David, but it's such an amazing awareness-raising project that you've done with your book, Monsoon Postcards. You know, this is a travel show we've been talking about the realities in these countries. Uh, let's just finish with, if you're going one place just to relax and have a good time, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, relax and have a good time. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, I think I would go back to Indonesia. There's plenty of Indonesia mm -hmm. I haven't seen. Uh, the food is wonderful. The people are warm. Um, you know, the living is relatively cheap. And so, uh, I mean, I wouldn't go to Bali, uh, but I would go to some of the other islands that are really interesting and I can take about a day or two on the beach. That's about yeah. it. Then I've got to go off exploring. I've well, we all, everybody dreams or... about Bali. It's got that romantic Hindu culture. Uh, but but the re you're talking about um, Muslim Indonesia, I would imagine. Name, name a couple of islands in particular that, that you'd recommend that we think about in our travel dreams, uh, other than Bali. I would like to uh, travel more in Sumatra, the largest island. I'd like to go to Kalimantan, um, well, actually, Kalimantan, Borneo is a larger island than Sumatra. Uh, the rainforest there, I mean, the volcanoes of Sumatra. And Indonesia is going to be really interesting because uh, the government's uh, moving its capital from Jakarta, which is sinking rapidly into the sea, into an area of Borneo, Kalimantan, and there are really uh, interesting environmental challenges there. They're going to put it in a place where you know, the orangutans have their natural habitat. And mm. uh, so, I mean, you know, Indonesia continues to fascinate me. I'd like to spend more more time there. You know, I'll take one day on the beach, but then I'm going to get be on a bus or shared taxi and traveling somewhere. Oh, I hear you. One of my favorite days I can remember traveling was just on the 
cattle car train from, where did I go? I went from Jakarta to um, Bandung. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bandung, yeah. God, that was an yeah. amazing Enjoy. trip. And yeah. I just yeah. thought this world's a beautiful place to get to know. David Moult, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for writing Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. Thank you. We have links to our guests with each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Copenhagen's our next stop on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. Coronavirus has put countless travel dreams on hold. And until we overcome this crisis, many will stay on hold. But to dream on and plan future travels is good medicine for those of us who will forever be dreaming of new places to explore. I'm thankful we get to share our travel dreams together right here on Travel with Rick Steves. Copenhagen, the home of Hans Christian Andersen, seems like almost a fairy tale for sightseeing. The canals, crowded yet cheery bike lanes, royal architecture all around, and the counterculture mecca of Christiania all beckon visitors to Denmark's capital. Danes like to have a good time, and the modern squares and the nightlife spots are great places to connect with Scandinavia's most fun-loving people. Speaking of fun-loving people, we've got tour guide Nina Sefuzati, who grew up in Denmark. She's a guide there, and she joins us now in our studio to help us plan a wonderful, wonderful trip to Copenhagen. Nina, thanks for being here. Thank you. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Oh, I love to see it right there when the Danes, hi, hi. It's not hi, just hi. hi, it's hi, hi. Well, you can do hi when you meet and then hi, hi when you're leaving, so that's really easy. Oh, good. that's good. Hi, hi, mm-hmm. hi, hi. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when we think of Copenhagen, it's Nordic. It's in the north of Europe, and it's uh, for some people, it's just one step further than their itinerary. Mm-hmm. But there's a real charm there, and oh, it, it's a wonderful gateway to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what, to you, is the charm of Copenhagen. Copenhagen, where I was born and raised, is a very mellow, human-sized city, first of all. Open towards the sea with the canals. Lots of bikes. Yeah. <laughs> For some, too many bikes. Well, <laughs> because you know, it can be really when crowded. I, when I check into my hotel, I, mm-hmm. I borrow or rent a mm-hmm. bike and mm-hmm. I, t- I tie it up. I always feel like I'm tying up a horse outside. You know, they've got exactly. a little rack yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I tie my horse up, but it's a bike in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And even if I had a, a taxi sitting outside my hotel, I wouldn't use it. I'd no. get on the bike and I'd go and I'd, I'd get there just as fast by bicycle. Exactly. That's the human part of the city. It's a, it's a big city, but it is it's very human. Exactly. Yeah, There's you something, can walk and... you know, if you go to the village, you think hugli. That's a good mm, Danish hugli. word, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What does hugli mean? A hygge has become a concept now, right? You're yeah. writing books about it. And yeah. Hugli is, you, you can translate it into coziness. Coziness. Or, yeah. You know, you... Hugli is that you are together and there's a closeness, there's a relaxed feeling, a lot of beer sometimes. Yeah. And if you're indoors, obviously lit candles, right? I love this. In Denmark, there's a candle in the window. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful thing. It just indicates to me there's some conviviality inside this house. I completely, yeah. It's gorgeous. Well, we need that light, don't we? You we do, because you're up in the, up in the Long, north, the dark, dark and dreary winters. north that's made more bright by your smiles. Well, let's review the basic sights mm-hmm. in Copenhagen. First of all, you've got the wonderful pedestrian boulevard, which was um, innovative in its day. I think it was mm-hmm. one of the first great pedestrian boulevards it in was. Europe, and now every city's got them. Stoil, yeah, which uh, is completely difficult to 
pronounce. Say it again. Stroget. S-T-R-O-G-E-T. It's like strolling almost. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. Uh, give me a quick walk. Where would I go? Go from the, the uh, city hall, right? Or, no, yep. no, the, the big uh, rat house. Yep, the Rådhusplassen, uh, right? Yep. The, the city hall, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have that the main square. That has changed a lot, by the way, by the building metros, etc. Yeah. And you're strolling down this street. That obviously has changed also since the 1960s when it opened up and when I kind of was a little girl and wandering there. There's shops, right? There are places where you can have food and, and lots of benches because there are little squares in between where yeah. you stroll down the street, but right. there's squares from one Many, point many to squares along the way, yeah. each with beautiful statues uh-huh. surrounded by historic buildings. Fountains, yeah. I think originally the businesses did not want that because they thought they needed the car access. Mm-hmm. Then they got it and they realized they're making more money with completely, pedestrians. Completely. But it happens everywhere around Europe, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People yeah. are resistant and then mm-hmm. they go, oh, I wish, mm-hmm. you know, really I wish my town here in Washington State would get it, but, you know, mm-hmm. merchants are afraid to not have somebody park immediately in front. But what happens when when you get all that pedestrian activity and all that charm and all that coziness, Mm -hmm. the rents go up. And when the rents go up, it drives away the the hoogly shops, the mom and pop shops, and the big international chains come in, and it changes the character. That's what I'm saying, yeah. So so in the beginning, that was the hoogly (laughs) street with a few fancy department stores like Elums and, you know, But now but the now side streets. Mm-hmm. So there's parallel streets that exactly. have the Hoogly yep. next to Stray. The alternative. You know, the alternative <laughs> streets. So go one block over. There you yeah. find better restaurants, mm-hmm. smaller shops, yeah. uh, a little more uh, coziness. Mm-hmm. I would say that all the parallel streets to, to Stray oh, yeah. are interesting. That's very nice. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of Stray, you get to a square which is quite impressive. It's the, Yeah, the New Harbor which is funny because mm-hmm. it's the old harbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Newhound, yeah, you're thinking about Newhound, yeah. yeah. So Newhaven means New Haven. New Haven, New yeah. Harbor, right? <laughs> yeah. But 500 years ago, it was the New Harbor. Yeah, it, it was, it yeah. used to be. Right? But yeah. now it's the, the old uh-huh. harbor called the New Harbor, uh-huh. and uh, it's like an open-air museum for ships. It is, yeah. Some are historic ships that they uh-huh. want to keep, obviously. There's another canal close by where you have other more yeah. historic ships. Some historic ships actually are homes for people, right? Okay. So. And it's so much part of our history. Copenhagen yeah. would not have existed if we hadn't had the, the trade and the ships. The and in, the, in the old days, this is where the tattoo parlors were oh, and, yeah. the, and the rough bars and, and the, <laughs> the girls sailors. and the sailors. <laughs> and you can still find a little bit of that. You can still find it, but it has been a little erased. <laughs> Tidied up. Tidied up. If, mm. if you look at it, it looks like it's out of a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale almost. Well, it's he from did that used age. to live there, right? There's a house in, in Newhoun where he used to live. Yeah. So that's kind of, he, he was there. He, he felt that. He saw that, right? Now, one thing, when I'm in New Haven, you've got mm-hmm. this giant anchor that's just like an mm-hmm. ornament that's tied up there. You've got these old ships. You've got these half-timbered, uh, uh, and daub kind of old houses mm-hmm. on the square with some very important cultural... Uh, isn't the theater there? Yep, or the Opera the House? Royal Opera. Yep, yeah, yep, exactly, yeah. And you have a lot of people on the curb drinking beer mm-hmm. and a lot of musicians outside. Mm-hmm. It can be a little shocking for some. Yeah. I know that for some visitors, when I do guided tours in Copenhagen, they think... What are all these people doing outside with cans, bottles of beer? Looks to me like a tattoo show. But, yeah, Everybody's exactly, showing but, off their tattoos. But then again, you have to remember also that it's a little bit more expensive to sit in a bar, have a beer, than just buy one in a shop and sit on the curb. That's <laughs> so, what, you know, when I've taken uh-huh. groups through Copenhagen, people go, oh, all of these kids, these mm-hmm. young people are drinking so much beer. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind them, no, there's no more beer drinking here than in the United States no. or in England or Ireland, mm-hmm. but it's too expensive for young people exactly. to go into a bar in, in mm-hmm. Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So you go to the Seven Eleven and you buy a beer for $2. And you sit on a bench. And you're or... sitting on a bench. <laughs> well, the great thing about Newhound is you, you sit there 
on the canal with your feet dangling. You know, you have the water just below. The sunset is maybe reflected in the so water. So on a nice evening, a balmy summer evening, late night. Yeah. It's it's light until eleven oh. o'clock. You know, oh, well, never really yeah. gets dark in the summer, right? So, <laughs> so you you, you hang don't outside? feel like going, yeah. But obviously, there, some people say there's a problem with alcoholism in that. Right. And well, but there is that conviviality with beer yeah. that French would have the wine, right? We have the beer. We it don't is make kind wine. of a balance, isn't it? You can yeah. abuse the alcohol, but exactly. it is a nice lubricant anywhere but to any, get people anywhere, together. Anywhere. And in Scandinavia, expensive as the beer is in Denmark, it's much cheaper than in Norway and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely, yeah. And then we're famous for our beers, remember. We have Carlsberg and Tuberg. The, the, the competing great Danish beers. The two beers. companies, yeah. They both welcome tourists for a visit, don't they? Carlsberg has, yes, they do. You can visit the, the, the beer production uh-huh. and uh, you even have a little free tasting at the end, yeah. which is quite popular. I it's guess. a fun experience. <laughs> it is, yeah. Danish-born tour guide, art lecturer and translator Nina Sefuzati is sharing the highlights of her hometown of Copenhagen right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Sid's calling in from Atlanta in Georgia. Sid, thanks for your call. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that Nina had me with beer on the street, beer <laughs> on the on the canal. I think that's a lovely thought as someone who enjoys brewskis um, even more than wine. So that that's lovely. But um, I'm very interested in uh, cultural attractions in Copenhagen, and wondered what Nina might put on a traveler's uh, earmarked list. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, Copenhagen is so filled with culture that, um, and and even outside Copenhagen, also easy to reach, right? I would start with the new Carlsberg Glyptothek. New Carlsberg Glyptothek, if yeah. I can say it with an American it's accent. Difficult, yeah. And that's the beautiful painting gallery. Eh? It has an incredible European art. It's a European art museum, right? But it's just a, such a beautiful building. Who and pays for that beautiful building? Ah, the beer pays for that building. So when you drink a beer, you're patronizing you, the arts. When you buy or you you drink, right, you Carlsberg. enjoy the Carlsberg beer, then it's actually, that's a fortune of the gentleman who created the beer, who, right. who also thought, well, let me give some money for art. <laughs> and there's that hippie uh, squatter community, uh, Christiania. Christiania, yeah. And they always have cutting-edge cultural events there. Completely, yeah. I mean, Christiania, you can feel, you know, like, mm, I don't want to go there mm-hmm. because it's... A right. little too much hippie. Yeah, you know, going. it is pretty edgy. But what I like to do in Copenhagen when I'm there and bringing friends, for instance, is that we have, there's this kind of open square in Christiania yep. with lots of little restaurants, little vendors, and then there's an open stage. Yeah. And they have they have constantly concerts there. You just show up and then they might be bad and might be good. But, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's fun. It's yeah. sort of life at Christiania yeah. is, is a festival every night. Completely, yeah. Yeah. But and then you have Design Museum. Which, oh. if you're interested in, in like, furniture, for instance. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, design. I mean, you can find design also. That's interesting. You don't even have to pay for that. You go into a great building, which is, uh, it's like a department store, but just for furniture and design, which is called Ilums. I-L-L-U-M-S. Ilums. Bolihus. It's on Stroll. It's on the pedestrian street, right? And it's, it's like a design it's, display. You know, Sid, yeah. uh, design is such a forte in Denmark. And if you just ask around when you get there, look online, mm. uh, the design exhibits, just even if you're not in design, you go, wow, now I see why Danes are so into mm. design and so famous for that. I shall make a note for mm. sure. Good. Thanks for your Enjoy call, that. Sid. Okay, Enjoy that. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now. Hi, hi. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Copenhagen with Nina Sefuzati.
So we're doing our walk through town, and uh, Sid mentioned uh, the museums, like there's the, the Nee Carlsberg Glyptotech for sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's the best painting collection. And then also, everything we're talking about is within walking mm-hmm. distance, it seems like. Um, and if you have a bicycle, it's within minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've got the National, what is it, the Archaeological Museum or the, the History Museum? Museum? Yeah, the yeah, History Museum is incredible. So you want to yeah. see Viking stuff, yeah. you want to see medieval stuff, you mm-hmm. want to see early Christian stuff. Oh, you, can, you stuff. can stay for days in that museum. <laughs> and it's yeah. wonderful. It's yeah. wonderful. And, and I like neoclassical statues. Mm. I like Canova, mm. you know. There is an amazing Danish sculptor. Torvaldsen. Oh, Torvaldsen. <laughs> and he's got a museum. Yep. But you find his art all over the town also. That's the thing. You go into the cathedral. The right? cathedral is right. lined by Torvaldsen's saints. Yeah. And that Jesus figure at the end oh. uh, is just the most beautiful, I think. It's gorgeous. Not because I'm from Copenhagen, but I think yeah. it's the most beautiful Jesus statue I've ever seen. Yeah. Right? It's, it's filled with empathy and, and oh. feelings. and yeah. I Check was, out Torvaldsen. I mean, yeah. in every country in Scandinavia has one artist you've got to know. Mm. Uh, you know, Carl Millis, I think, in Sweden. In Sweden, And uh, yeah. Viglund in, in Norway. Norway, yeah. And uh, Torvaldsen, Torvaldsen, I would yeah. say, when you're yeah. in Denmark. Well, he's one of the great, great artists that we have, and we yeah. have many. <laughs> and, and the Scandinavian artists, they went down to France, and they went down to Italy to be inspired. Well, they did the Grand Tour, right? They did, right. as all the artists did, and got inspired. But, I mean, they got inspired, obviously, by Italy and France, but and mainly Italy, I would say. But they also brought their Danish, yeah, or Scandinavian, it's a Nordic. It's a yeah, beautiful fusion. Completely, yeah. 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 Now, when I look at Copenhagen on the map, I can see the fortifications of the city. Mm-hmm. It was a very well fortified city in oh, the day. Completely, yeah. And now, so. and now those fortifications, you can still see them, but they're parks and they're lakes mm-hmm. and they're ramparts that you can climb on and so on. That's a beautiful part of it. Describe the star series of fortifications around the city. Yeah, Castellet. Yeah, well, you have uh, if you go up kind of north of the city center, you have what is called Castellet, which is really mm-hmm. this fortification. Yeah. But you just kind of follow the the line of lakes around the city. Yeah. And the names of the neighborhoods, like Östervold, Westervold, right? it's the eastern ramparts and the western ramparts. It, it clearly shows you where you are. But and now it's just it's opened just, up. And it's, and it's a people-oriented, completely. like the pedestrian streets, like the bicycle completely. lanes. It's, yeah. it, it's just cozy. It's hoogly. Jim from Colorado Springs emails us, and he asks, what food specialties do you suggest? Maybe a couple of don't-miss-it places to eat in Copenhagen. That's a great question, because when we go to Copenhagen, we want to eat like a temporary Dane. Mm. When you go out for a lunch, what kind of a lunch do you like? Oh, <laughs> you want my little guilty pleasure? Yes. I, I think it's yours also. It's hot dogs. <laughs> the pulsa. Or what, yeah, the pulsa one. <laughs> the little tiny skinny weenies yeah. with a tiny bun, then they yep, stick out yep. on both ends a long way. It sounds maybe strange for Americans that you know, I love hot dogs, but it does that Danish tradition of at any time of the day you can have a hot dog, you stroll in the street, you can smell them. Yeah. <laughs> and now they have, oh, they have organic hot dogs and all that. Oh my but, goodness. So the, you go to the hot dog stand yeah. and it's, it's like a hot dog stand. It's, it's a, a hot dog stand, stand but, it's, it you know, but, but then again, you have, obviously you have the more sophisticated food, which is smurbled, right? The open sandwiches. So it, it ranges from uh, hot dogs to fancy gourmet food, famously expensive mm-hmm. and pretentious restaurants. But talk about the open-faced sandwich because mm-hmm. that, you just feel so elegant when you're having a lunch of an open-faced sandwich. <laughs> well, the thing about visitors, when I, I talk about the open sandwiches, and I have to explain to them that it's a sandwich, but you eat it with a knife and a fork. Right. Because it's stacked up, right? You have levels, layers of, of stuff, and on rye bread, always rye bread, right? right. Yeah. And, and then butter, and then you might have the... Anything, meat or eggs, vegetables, shrimp. eggs. Shrimp yeah. is beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and then again, because we've had this evolution of the new Nordic cuisine, is that even the 
open face sandwiches, you can find the classical ones and you can find the really fancy fusion. So, so, so <laughs> yeah. what is, quote, new, new Nordic, Nordic cuisine? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, anything, we have to create something new all the time. Like, yeah. <laughs> but what was a, a real surprise to a lot of people, particularly the Danes, was that there was a Danish restaurant called Norma in oh, yeah. OMA, right. yeah. who suddenly was elected and chosen to be the best restaurant in the world. Wow. Yeah. It was that we, Danish people, yeah. we have the best restaurant in the world. In the world, literally in the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what did the chef do? Well, actually, what he, he, he took up some of the very classical things that we've already had. You know, yeah. we, we knew that, yeah. beets and potatoes and stuff, the fish, obviously. But he created something new, right? He created something extraordinary. He created a place where people wanted to be seen. Right. Menus cost, you know, a lot. Uh, cost uh, yeah. hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And you got to book it months in advance, literally. Exactly. You can't yeah, just yeah, walk yeah. up for your open face uh-huh. sandwich there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Copenhagen with Copenhagen guide Nina Sefuzati. Nina, let's just finish with a little bit of this fun-loving uh, Danish business. First of all, the Danes... Seem compared to their Scandinavian sisters and brothers, a little looser. What's the what's mm-hmm. the different personality between Danes, Swedes, Ooh, and Norwegians? You want me to go into that? Get in, get in a little trouble. <laughs> I here. hope my Swedish, Dane, Norwegian colleagues not listening oh, to this. Talking, you're talking to a Norwegian. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> well, Danes are usually seen as the more, if I can say, Mediterranean, you know, yeah, people right. of Scandinavia, where the Swedes are seen as a little more uptight, a little more snobbish. It's like the, the big sister, right? Sweden yeah. is the big sister, right? They're the responsible ones. Responsible ones. They, they, <laughs> they are get the it political done. correct ones. And, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. And and then you have Norway, who's like that little brother, whatever little sister that suddenly grew up and got a lot of money. Right? <laughs> they got the but, oil. Or they got the oil. <laughs> yeah. And Danes, what do we have? Well, we have... We have fun. We do have, you know, we have fish <laughs> and potatoes and it not not anything, you know, oilish. But we have that thing that is probably more a little relaxed, laid back. Yeah. The fact that Swedes will come to Denmark because it's so close by. We have a bridge linking us yeah, now, right? that's right. They will come to Denmark to, well, to party. To party. Well, yeah. there's, what are the two towns, Helsingor, Helsingborg, right yes, across? exactly. Yeah. Up north where the Hamlet north. Castle is. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. remember going there, and uh, the Danes don't go to Sweden to party. No. <laughs> the Swedes go to Denmark oh, to yeah. party. Yeah. And it, when they party, they party. It's like letting oh, kids kidding. have no rules, you know. But it's also because the alcohol is less expensive it's less than expensive, in Sweden. Right? Yeah. And in Denmark, you can buy alcohol. And then finally, yeah. speaking of parties, you yeah. know, Tivoli Gardens is sort of the mm-hmm. classic. It's the Disneyland, the cultural okay. Disneyland of Denmark. But it's mm-hmm. very touristy, and mm-hmm. it's right down there. And you got to see it. I, I really like it. But for a Dane, Let's say Danish uh, parents are taking their kids out for a, a nice, uh, mm. uh, you know, a break, a little, a little tiny vacation. Mm-hmm. What's the alternative to Tivoli? Growing up, right, my parents oh. would take me out there, and then I'll go out there on my own. You just take it; it's a short train ride. You can bike out there. You can follow the, the coastline, uh-huh. and it's just up north of the center of Copenhagen. It's called Bakken. B-A-K-K-E-N. Bakken. Bakken. So that's yeah. where you can go to get the um, casual. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of the. Knott's Berry Farm to Disneyland, I think you could mm, say. It's an amusement park, right? There are rides. There's an, I think, 82-year-old roller coaster. I don't know if nice. you want to go up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 82 years. But, but, but the thing it. is that okay. it's free, and it's free to Back go in, in there. It's usually you pay to get in, right? Nina, thank yeah. you so much for giving us a, an exciting look at your beautiful city. Wonder, I know now why people say wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. Copenhagen, yeah. Thank you. Tusen, thank you so much. Tusen tak. Tak, what do you say? Tusen tak. Tusen tak. You say tusen tak, I say det var salit. That was nothing. Okay, let me, let's do that. That's thousand thanks. Tusen tak. Det var så lidt. Hi, hi. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Kazmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. 
Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikone. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.